Do you remember uh, the feeling of having to introduce yourself lots of times in quick succession? Perhaps it was um, at a new school or university. Maybe, in fact, you're in the midst of uh, Freshers' Week and you're doing that a lot. Uh, Maybe it was uh, at a new job and uh, you had to navigate being the new guy or girl uh, where everyone else sort of knows each other, but you are new. Uh, Maybe you're new uh, to church uh, uh, to us at All Souls. And everyone here says to you, oh, have you been here long? Uh, Which uh, can feel like code for, who are you? What do you say in those situations? How do you introduce yourself? I suggest it's pretty normal to uh, say your name. That's a good start. But what do you say then? Do you talk about uh, where you're from or your family Uh, Perhaps you go down the line of uh, why you're there. If it's a a new role, uh, you talk about that. If it's a university, you talk about uh, the courses uh, that you're taking. What do you say? What information do you decide to share about yourself? How do you define your identity? Now, we live in a world obsessed with identity, Different cultures build up the layers of identity in different ways. At the moment, in 21st century uh, London, uh, where we're still dominated by sort of Western ideas of identity, there's a strong emphasis on self-identification. Now, I don't necessarily mean uh, the idea that we're allowed to say who we are sort of irrespective of objective facts. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that we are just very individualistic. It is what I do and what I think and what I feel that defines me, who I am. But ultimately, there are only two identities that can define us, according to the Bible. Only two which can kind of be the core of our identities. The question is, are you God's friend or his enemy? Now, we can express that in lots of different ways, but it fundamentally boils down to this. Are you with God or against God? Or probably more accurately, are you with God or is he against you? In the language of this passage that we've just had read, is death reigning over you or have you received God's gift? Are you in Adam's kingdom Or are you in Christ's? Let's just uh, remind ourselves uh, where we're up to, uh, why we're asking that question. Cast your eyes back over verses uh, 9 to 11. We've had uh, those read in the service already. We're still on page 1132 if you've closed it. Let me read verses 9 to 11 to remind us where we're up to. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul states here in unambiguous terms that Jesus' death on the cross reconciled God's enemies Sinners like you and like me to God himself. 
It is a complete change of identity. But how does that work? How can one man's actions save many people? Well, that's the immediate question, I think, that verses 12 to 21 are answering. And as Paul answers that question, he pictures every person who has ever lived as belonging to, sort of being represented by one of two people, either Adam or Christ. Thomas Goodwin imagined the scene as two giants with belts on, and on uh, the belts there were little hooks, and every person who has ever lived is hung on one of those hooks on those belts, either on Adam's belt or on Christ's belt. We're going to see uh, one thing about each of those this week. The first is this. Death's reign in Adam is total. Death's reign in Adam is total. Let me read verses 12 to 14 again. Please look down at those. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned, To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is the pattern of the one to come. Now, Romans has a reputation for being uh, quite complicated in parts, and I can understand why, having uh, spent some time in these verses. But our verses may look quite complicated, uh, but I think they're a bit like a maze, which has signposts along the way at key points, and a hedge that you can kind of mostly see over uh, most of the time. If you kind of know the general direction that you're heading in Romans, where you're meant to be going, and you avoid going down too many sort of unhelpful side passages, you can plot your way through. So let's see if we can do that uh, together tonight. Uh, Here's how the logic works in our uh, verses, I think. Verse 12, Paul sort of starts off his argument that just as death came into the world through one man, Adam, new life came through one person, Jesus. But he doesn't actually manage to finish his thought, does he, at the end of verse uh, 12. He doesn't finish it until verse 18. Uh, But you can have a look at it there. Uh, There's the end of his thought. There's the end of his sentence. And we'll look at that uh, next week. So kind of hold fire on that uh, for next week. In verses 13 and 14, he answers a sort of specific objection about people who lived before the Old Testament law uh, was given. We'll see how that matters for his overall purpose in Romans uh, as we go along. And then in uh, verses 15 to 17, he talks about the trespass and the gift. He makes a comparison of those, and we'll see how those fit into the root map in our second point. So that's a kind of big picture uh, of the section. Uh, Let's try and dig into verses 12 to 14 a bit more. Have a look at verse 12 with me. Death comes from one man and everyone dies. That's what verse uh, 12 is saying. 
And then we can kind of insert an objection between verses 12 and 13. Doesn't sin only count when there's a command to break? No, verse 13, that's not right. Sin was there before the law was given. Verse 14, have a look at that. Here's the key point. Death reigned even in the time where there was no law. It all adds up to that, that death's reign in Adam is total. That's, that's the sketch. We're kind of building down the layers. Let's go into even more detail in these verses now. Let's try and uh, uh, fill out that detail without getting lost. So verse 12. It's fashionable these days to sort of minimise the Bible's account of how sin and uh, death and evil came into the world, or to kind of soften the blow of personal responsibility when it comes to our sin, our rebellion against our creator, God. One way of doing that is to say that the accounts of Genesis 1 to 3, the first chapters of the whole Bible, that they're just kind of mythological or they're allegorical. Paul here is having none of that, and nor would his master, our Lord Jesus. For them, and therefore for us today, Genesis 3 really happened, and that is the background of what we're talking about in Romans chapter 5. It is simply an act of kind of chronological intellectual snobbery to say that Paul was just an unsophisticated man in an unsophisticated time who would believe anything. From our verses, he clearly believes that uh, the events of Genesis 3, when the first man and woman rebelled against God's good rule by eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he believes that those events really happened. We are right to read that chapter, Genesis 3, in its context and recognising its kind of literary genre, but we have no right to throw those verses away. And so, verse 12, Paul kind of pitches it, uh, pitches it as a drama with sin and death as the main characters, trying to get a grip on that newly created world. Paul says that when Adam, and, uh, Adam ate the fruit, sin entered the world. That's what he says in verse 12. Just as a kind of a side note, Uh, That means that the vilification of Eve over the centuries is grossly unfair. Adam is the one who is in the dock here, isn't he? Sin's consequence, just as God had promised, was death. And that death spread from Adam to all people, because all people sinned. Now, you may have heard of the doctrine of original sin, And these verses are some of the verses on which it's based. But Paul doesn't really explain here exactly how it works in detail. What is clear from here, if you look at the verses again, is that Adam acts as a representative for all of humanity. Remember, he's that giant with hooks on his belt. As those who come after him, we are those who bear his, the, the consequences of his action, and we bear his likeness. We sin and we die. 
And so sin and death have a hold over us. Now, we might want to object at this point. Isn't it really unfair to hold me responsible for something a man I never met in a time that I don't know about? Isn't it unfair that I can be blamed for Adam's sin? Now, I think Paul would give three responses uh, to that. The first kind of brief one is, who are you to tell God what is fair and what is not fair? It is his world. We are all his creatures. And he gets to say how things work. And basically, he uses that, Paul uses that argument in uh, chapter 9, if you want to read that later. The second answer is that actually we're just used to the idea of people's actions being viewed as our own. Every football fan knows that uh, when we go uh, to the match, we're not actually the ones scoring the goals or uh, winning the match. And yet, we still come home and we say, we won, we lost. We know that. Or when the Prime Minister uh, signs an international treaty, that that is tantamount to us signing it. He or she is our representative And assuming that we abide by the laws of uh, the country, we're sort of bound by the agreement and its terms, and we get to enjoy its benefits as well. There are all sorts of spheres where we recognise that this sort of thing happens. That is the logic of what's going on. Adam is the representative of all humanity. When he sinned, we all sinned. When death started its reign over him, it started its reign over all of us. Death's reign in Adam is total. I did say there are three reasons that I think Paul would give, uh, three answers to that question. Uh, We're just going to have to wait for the third, okay? Uh, Because Paul wants to drive home just how total death's reign is uh, before we get to it. We'll be brief, but verses 13 and 14, if you look down at them again, deal with the question, isn't sin a breaking of a law, a command? What about all those who didn't have any sort of command, a law to break? You see, Adam broke a direct command uh, from God not to eat of that tree. But what about all those people who came after him but didn't have a command to break? Surely they shouldn't have died. Isn't that unfair? Well, Paul says no, verse 13, they did sin. He uses several technical terms in uh, these verses, which amount to him saying their sin wasn't sort of entered into a ledger, an accounting book, because that requires a kind of a specific law to be broken. But it was still sin. It was still rebellion against God's rule. And it led to death. They died. And so, in some ways, we know that they sinned. I'm reading a book about the Second World War uh, prison camp, Colditz, at the moment, uh, famous for its many escape attempts. Lots of the prisoners there broke uh, explicit rules by trying to escape. But many just kind of had an attitude of insolence and rebellion against their captors, whilst never actually trying to escape. Now, the people from uh, Adam to Moses uh, weren't God's captives. That's not what was going on. But they were perhaps a little bit like those prisoners. They didn't break explicit commands, but their lives were just ordered to show that they did not want God to rule over them. 
That's what's going on. And the result, verse 14, is that death reigned over everyone. Before God gave the law to Moses and afterwards. No one is exempt. Death's reign in Adam is total. Now, okay, all of that may have sounded a bit technical and laboured. Here's the payout for working so hard. Here's uh, where to tune back in. We are all in this together. Many of those that Paul was writing to uh, were Gentiles who could kind of legitimately say, oh, we we didn't have the law. How can you blame us? We're not going to kind of rehash Paul's arguments in uh, chapters 1 to 3. He's already said that no one is uh, has an excuse. Here he's saying it again in a slightly different way. We are all in Adam, he says. We all die as a consequence of his sin and of ours. Our Adamness is kind of our default identity. We are on his belt. Death's reign in Adam is total. But, but, the gift of God in Christ is greater still. That's our second point. But God's gift in Christ is greater still. Paul isn't quite ready to go back to his uh, line of argument that he started in verse 12. He kind of moves towards it at the end of verse 14, if you see, uh, if you look at that. He says, "Who Adam is the pattern of the one to come. That's Jesus that he's talking about. The word pattern there, uh, it sort of means a stamp, which leaves an impression in a piece of wax. The point is that Jesus is like Adam. And we will get there eventually in verse 18. Adam's action had an effect for all. Jesus' action has an effect for all. Remember, that's kind of the ultimate goal of where we're going in this section of Romans. But Paul really doesn't want us to overplay the similarities, as if Jesus' death on the cross for sinners, that amazing event that he spent lots of time talking about earlier in the chapter, doesn't want us to think that that kind of just about balances out Adam's sin. No, let's look at verses 15 uh, to 17 uh, to see what he actually says. Verse 15, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the uh, the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Just remember the sort of maze illustration that we can get through it if we think about the ultimate goal. Here's the headline. The gift is not like the trespass. Verse 15. Adam might be like, uh, he might be a pattern for Jesus, but the gift is not like the trespass. In other words, God kind of giving us Jesus is not on the same level as Adam's sin. 
Death's reign in Adam may be total, but God's gift in Christ is greater still. Here's how it works. We've got a series of comparisons. So let's try and build those up. First, we have verse 15, if you look at it again. We have sort of the way it happened. Many died because Adam broke God's command. It's kind of a bold statement of uh, fact about the consequence of Adam's sin. On the other side of the balance, Jesus brought God's grace as a gift, which overflows to many. That's the language of generosity. Then verse 16, we have kind of the result. On the one hand, we have judgment and condemnation, terrible things. On the other hand, we have justification, a subject that Paul has waxed lyrical about already in the letter. Now, condemnation and justification, they're sort of flip sides of each other. But if you look at verses 1 to 11 again, you'll see that the benefits of justification, at least the way that they're described, they seem to outweigh how Paul describes the consequences of condemnation. In the same verse, in verse 16, we have kind of the extent of the event. The judgment, if you look at it, followed just one sin, Adam's disobedience. But the justification that Jesus brings, well, that follows every sin that ever was. He isn't just reversing one sin, but many, many sins. How great and powerful that gift must really be. And finally, we have verse 17. It's kind of the end state. Death reigns over all. On the one hand, Adam's sin means that we are subject of death's reign. And it's a grim reign, isn't it? Which brings sadness and misery to all. You may have lost a loved one and still feel the sting of death. Perhaps you feel time's winged chariot hurrying near, and you know that you are actually in the latter uh, years of your life. Death and its prospects are really grim. But those who receive God's abundant provision of grace, verse 17, that's not a kind of stingy amount, is it? It's a generous one. And who receive the gift of righteousness, that's being right with God, Have a look what happens. Verse 17, we will reign in life. We will be kings and queens with Jesus. That is a really exciting idea, a new identity. But we are going to sort of park that for next week because verse 21 comes back to it in a big way. And so we're going to spend lots of time thinking about that exciting idea next week. For now, can we see why it matters which kingdom you're in? Who is our representative, Adam or Jesus? What is your true core identity? Which giant are you hanging on? Here's the third reason, I think, that Paul uh, uh, can say that it's not unfair to appoint Adam to represent us. It means he can appoint Jesus to represent us 
instead, in our failed place, in Adam's failed place. And the gift, it is much better than the trespass. It far outweighs them all. I think that's what uh, Paul is trying to do. He's trying to build up on one side uh, Adam's kingdom and on the other side Jesus's. And Jesus's far outweighs the other. Death's reign in Adam is total, but God's gift in Christ is greater still. So, who is ultimately defining your identity? Is it Adam or is it Jesus? Perhaps you've heard uh, the good news uh, of Jesus over these last three Sunday evenings here as we've looked at Romans 5 and you've thought, yes, I'll go to Christianity Explored. Phil uh, suggested that that would be a good move and I can explore it further. And that would be a good thing to do. Uh, I'm not saying it wouldn't. Uh, But I want to say, perhaps you actually already know that you need to change identity. You need to go from Adam's rubbish kingdom, which is actually death's kingdom. That's not a kingdom to be in, is it? You need to go from that to Jesus's kingdom. That is really much, much better. A kingdom of gift. If that's you, then please uh, do come and find me at the end. I'd love to chat to you about that. For the rest of us who have already done that, I hope that we can see that life in Jesus's kingdom with Jesus as our representative, him giving us the identity, is so much better. If you want to think uh, more about kind of what that looks like, read uh, the rest of Romans. If you're new uh, to All Souls, do join Roots and do that with us as we start uh, doing that on Wednesday evenings this week. I want to suggest just one way uh, that this applies to our church life together. So as we chat to a brother or sister uh, after the service, will we remember that we were all in this uh, together? We were all subject to death's reign. And now the balance has been decisively tipped. We have a new identity That means we don't discriminate on the basis of past sins. All in Adam, all now in Christ if we're trusting in him. It means we don't focus on our differences. Uh, We're a wonderfully ethnically diverse church family and we mustn't sort of flatten out that uh, diversity as it is uh, part of God's plan. But it is not our sort of primary identity. This section though it feels a bit technical, it is not a sideshow for Paul in his letter to the Romans. It is at the heart of his call to be a church that is united in Christ, transformed by the gospel of Jesus, to make Jesus known throughout the whole world. That is what we long to be at All Souls. And an absolute security, knowing who we are, a security in our identity, is vital for that. We are those over whom death's reign was total. But now, through no merit of our own, God has given us a much greater gift to reign in Christ's kingdom 
That is our true identity. In a moment, I'm going to pray that we would live that out uh, this week. I'm going to invite the band uh, back up uh, before I do that. Let's have a moment of silence, and then I'll lead us in a prayer. Let me pray. Our Father, we praise you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you that he gives us a new identity secure in him. And we pray that those of us who are trusting in him would live out that new identity and particularly that we would be united in wanting the good news of Jesus to go throughout this city and throughout this world. Please, in your goodness, would you use us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.